today we're on the book of Esther. Such a neat, fun, cool, interesting book. Um, actually, I don't really, I could, just, I could just open it up and read it. If you like stories, I could just read the story of Esther and then we could be done because it, 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 it tells itself. It's an amazing book. Um, now, how many people would, will admit to liking and watching soap operas or telenovelas? Good. I'm glad nobody admits to that. We're all super spiritual and strong here. I love it. But yeah, it's, it ha- if you like soap operas or if you're in your, your previous sinful life, then you used to watch soap operas, um, you're going to love this story. So uh, if we just read it, you would be fed. Like if I just read it out loud, you're going to be fed. At worst, you'll be entertained because that's the kind of book that it is. It's just entertaining. It's fascinating. It's beautiful. But I can't just read it. I have to put it into historical context. I'm sorry. It's just I can't help myself because, it, again, it's a, it, is a, it is a soap opera style of story. It's got everything, sex and alcohol and revenge and, and turnabout, and it's just amazing. But where it's placed in history is we have to consider it. It's the 5th century B.C., and the world is changing dramatically. There's an intellectual expansion in the civilizations. Uh, Confucius, is, he is laying down his, his philosophies in the East. In, in Greece, they are experimenting with democracy and philosophy and rhetoric. Mathematics is going off the charts. So there's like a, there's like a literal Cambrian explosion in the intellectual capacity of humankind at this point in history when Esther took place. Um, if you've been following along, you know that the, 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 the Hebrews, sometimes we call them Jews, sometimes we call them Israelites, Israelis, whatever. I mean, we'll just Jews, Hebrews, whatever. But they have been, they have been sent away to ex- exile. They have, they're, they're in Babylon where they have become slaves. And now they are in Persia because there's another new major empire. And the Persian Empire is the world's largest empire. And at this point in history, it's in major conflict between the West, between Greece, and we're going to see one of, the, one of the major battles unfold between Eastern thought and Western thought. And we're probably still fighting this war today in some ways. Um, let's see. Let's see. There's the Persian Empire. If you can't see it, I know it's a little hazy, but it stretches from India to Ethiopia and goes into Greece. This empire is huge. And in the center, it is ruled by Xerxes, in the capital city of Susa. Do we have a picture of Xerxes? There he is. This guy. How many people have seen the movie 300? He is our character in the Bible. He is, he is the king in Esther. Some of you know, remember the story of Esther from your Sunday school days. And this is the guy. Uh, Esther doesn't make it into the movie, though. She, she, they don't write her into the script for some reason. There he is. And I don't think, honestly, I don't think that once we begin to know a little bit more about Xerxes from the Bible, I don't think he was this sexy. 
I just don't, I don't, because he was most likely, he's a drunk in this book. And so just, I just, this has changed the way that we think about him, because I think that he was probably fat and slob and a slush and probably had lots of back hair, and just probably a disgusting individual. That, and he probably did have a lot of gold chains, but you know, it was like those really tacky gold chains, right? So this is who we're really talking about. He was a pig. And so let's uh, turn that cell phone off. Let's do that. All right, so let's uh, Esther chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. At the time of King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for his nobles and officials. The word banquet is used in the book of Esther more times than all the other Old Testament books put together. So banquets are a big deal in the book of Esther. For a full 180 days, he displayed his vast wealth of his kingdom and his splendor and his glory and his majesty. He also goes by the the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, interestingly enough. When these days were over, he gave a banquet, another banquet, lasting for seven days. And enclosed in the garden of the king's palace were all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen, purple material to silver rings of marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavements of marble, mother of pearl, and costly stones. That's the ground that they walk on. Wine was served in gold goblets, each one different from the other. So 170 gold goblets. If you, ended up, if you got invited to this, this party, you did not get a red cup. You got a gold cup. And you got a custom gold cup. I can imagine what they looked like. I mean, maybe it, it symbolized you know, where you were from or what, you know, what country you ruled or what kind of king you were or whatever. But you got a custom gold cup, a party gift that you got to take home. Cool, huh? What do they call those bags that you get, those... Swag bag. So you get a gold cup in your swag bag. Nice. And you get to pick your booze. You get to pick your alcohol, your, your, your wine. You want the expensive stuff? You get to drink the expensive stuff. You know, you're from Russia? Then you get to drink vodka, the most expensive stuff you can find. And so, and there was no, it was an open bar, so you got to drink as much as you want. And so, Xerxes, our buddy, he gets drunk. With all, of his, with all of his friends, with all of the kings of all of Persia. It was probably the best party the world has ever seen because it had all the party animals from Ethiopia to India. Could you imagine? And they are having a good time. Queen Vashti, Xerxes' queen, also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, again, there's lots of drinking in this story, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, if you don't know what a eunuch is, ask your parents, Uh, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the, the king's command, Queen Vashti refused 
Uh-oh. The king became furious, and he burned with anger. Then one of the, the eunuchs replied, In the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong. Not only against the king, but also against the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. She has humiliated the entire empire because she has not shown up to your party. Right? For the queen's conduct will become known to all women. You can pay attention to this. So her conduct is going to become known to every woman in the empire. And so they will despise their husbands and say... King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and the Median women of the nobility who have heard all about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. We're going to have a bunch of rebellious women. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. So this is going to be a major issue because... Xerxes can't get his wife to do something. Now here's, uh, I don't know, it's implied, maybe you didn't quite catch it, but I believe this is actually what happened. Uh, the scholars believe that this is actually what happened. So when Xerxes, you know, big fat hairy Xerxes on his throne, he's all drunk, he's having a good time with his buddies, has this bright idea, I'm going to show off my wife, and she's going to be wearing her royal crown, and this is what's implied, it is only her royal crown, okay? Do you see how offensive this is to women? And Vashti, I mean, she's kind of, she's a hero. She stands up to her husband, to the king. She probably every, only saw him every once in a while because he had this, you know, massive harem. So it was basically only for a title, probably. She stands up against him because he's like, nuh-uh, I'm not marching myself naked in front of all your drunk buddies so that you can show me off. And then we see a divorce. We see a royal divorce. It doesn't say that she gets murdered. Here's the interesting thing about Vashti. Uh, she doesn't make it into the history books. Interesting, huh? Herodotus doesn't write about her. Uh, we, don't, we actually have very few of the... the uh, Persian Mede uh, Chronicles, but she's not in there either. There is no record of Vashti outside of the scriptures. And this is just showing us that the world is changing, that we have to respect people. And I, I believe that Vashti, you know, she should be honored for this. But she gets divorced. Why is it such a big deal? I mean, you know, of course, there's the public embarrassment. But there's 127 provinces that get called together from all over the empire. And Xerxes, he is, he's rolling out the red carpet. Like he's giving them all gold cups. He's putting on this amazing party. He is serving the drinks. It is an unlimited bar. And when people of influence, when people of power, when businessmen, when politicians, when they act like this and when they throw parties like this, what are they trying to do? There's a motive. What's the motive? What do you think? He's got all the satraps, the governors, the kings, the princes. He is, yeah, that's it. He wants to make that money. He is raising funds. This is a political fundraiser, nothing less. And what is he raising funds to do? He's raising funds to attack the Greeks. 
the, the Battle of Thermopylae. That's the big battle in, in, in 300. It's where, it's where King Leonidas defeats them all in uh, the hot gates, the little narrow you know, meter where uh, you know, the brave Spartans defeat the, the nasty Persians. Uh, as far as the Bible goes, we don't know who the bad guys are and the good guys are, by the way. But that is what they're trying to finance. That's why it's such a big deal. And that is why Xerxes has got to get himself a new wife. And there we have Esther. So Esther, most likely a teenage girl. Beautiful, pretty, smart. We're going to see that in a second. Uh, But she is in kind of an uncomfortable circumstance. She has been adopted by her cousin Mordecai. And Mordecai is a Jew. Therefore, Esther is a Jew as well. And she hides her identity. Mordecai convinces her to hide her identity as a Jew. And he says, all right, this, this is an opportunity for us to gain favor in this massive empire. And maybe God's in it. Uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 2. Later, King Xerxes, when his fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done uh, and his decree about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let, us cert, let a search be made for, a beautiful young, for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king compo- uh, appoint commissioners in every prom- province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa and let them be placed under the care of a eunuch who is in charge of the women and let beauty treatments be given to them for like a year. How would you like to have a beauty treatment for an entire year? Yes. And let the woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So we have... Xerxes, putting on an international beauty show, a beauty pageant. What a bizarre thing, huh, that a political leader would be managing a beauty show. How barbaric. Persians, well, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I'm so sorry. Can't help myself, it's just too... Anyway. So Mordecai is a Jew. He is in the court. Uh, I always got confused when I, when I, as, a, as a kid when I heard this story. Uh, I always thought that Mordecai was the bad guy. Because doesn't Mordecai sound like an evil name? It sounds like a villain's name, right? But Mordecai is the good guy. Uh, and actually, unfortunately for him, like his name translates as servant of Marduk. So this good little Jewish kid gets this really evil name. So it actually is an evil name. But uh, he, he's good, nonetheless. Now, the bad guy, his name is Haman. Whenever uh, this story is still, like, in, in synagogue, this story is told, I think, on March the 8th. And this is kind of when it happens. And they get together, uh, the, the Jewish people today get together, and they read the story, and they celebrate a festival, a banquet. They, they celebrate a lot. And this is one of them. And this is the, ce- this is the celebration of Purim. Uh, it's a lot that's cast, that the bad guy cast. So um, little girls would actually dress up, or they still do, they dress up as a princess, as Esther. 
And they come into synagogue to this day, and they have like a little beauty pageant, and, and people give them candy, and it's really sweet. But then there's the bad guy. The bad guy's name is Haman. And so to this day, whenever, whenever this story is read out loud, whenever Haman's name is mentioned, all the good little Jewish kids, they go, boo, boo, bad Haman. So I, 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 you guys are welcome to do that. I, I did this first service. It was, I kind of regretted it, but let's do it again because it's kind of fun and we're kind of off the tracks today anyway. So um, let's just, if you hear, if, you, if I say the word Haman, go, boo, yeah, I see. There we go. Thank you. Yep. All right. After all of these events, so we have the, the divorce of Vashti, we have Esther entering into a beauty contest that her adopted father, Mordecai, arranges. She is put into the presence of the eunuchs and of the, the, the managers of the palace. She gains their favor. Now, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of beautiful women, but, and, and I'm sure they are all gorgeous, but she's the one that gained favor. So that's important. We've got to get this. Like if you're struggling at your work with your boss, it's because you haven't learned the secret of favor. And Jesus himself said, all right, I need to increase in the favor of God, which is ironic because Jesus is God. I don't know how that works. If you figure it out, tell me. But he had to increase in the favor of God and of man. So Jesus himself worked on this idea of gaining God's favor and gaining man's favor. And, and I know that might be difficult. It might be counterproductive, but that's, this, that's wisdom. Now, what I'm not saying is don't bow your knee. There's a difference because we'll, we'll, hopefully we'll uncover that today. All right, after all these events, Xerxes honored Haman. Thank you. The, Agat, the Agatite. Now, the, an Agatite is also a, um, oh, it's blanking on me, Canaanite, uh, and then the other, Amorite. So an Agatite, an Agatite is an Amorite, and Amorite is synonymous with Canaanite, who are the traditional enemies of the Jews. And it goes, it's a blood feud, it's a blood feud that goes all the way back to Esau. And so Esau and Isaac, that, 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 you know, that tension between brothers, that blood feud, it goes all the way back there. And so our bad guy, our villain, his name sounds good, Haman, but he's not. He is the bad guy. Thank you. All right, so he gets elevated. King Xerxes elevates him and, gives, and giving him the seat of honor, Right? of honor, higher than that of all the other nobles. So he's the right hand. He is, he's the viceroy. And all the royal officials and all the king's gate, they knelt down and they paid honor to Haman. So, yes. So, yet, you know, big old cool Xerxes, people, they bow before him. They kneel before him. And at the right hand of the king, you are supposed to treat that individual with the same amount of respect. So, Whenever the king is, I don't know, hanging out in his harem with all of his women, um, Haman is running the show, and Haman is demanding that everybody bow to him. Do you guys get the picture? The bad guy. He's in power. All right. 
But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Mordecai, the good Jew, won't now kneel down to Haman. And I, I have a hunch that he wouldn't kneel down before Xerxes either. But he has favor. He is in the court. But he has the same spirit, the same attitude, the same position that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. They wouldn't bow down either. And so this, this value system gets passed on from generation to generation, and it comes up in Mordecai. He will not bow his knee to a viceroy or to a king. Interesting. Um, in the movie 300, the, the climax of the whole thing is between uh, Leonidas and Xerxes. So Xerxes actually shows up to the Battle of Thermopylae, and he's, he, uh, they have this confrontation. It's mano y mano. It's, it's the King Leonidas and the God King, or the King of all kings, Lord of all lords, the master of the world, Xerxes. And Xerxes says, I will give you the desires of your heart, King Leonidas. I will make you king over all Greece and over all Europe, over the entire Western world. We will make it, we will, we will bring it all in. We will control it. We will bring pre peace and harmony to the entire uncivilized world in addition to your civilized, advanced Greek city-states. And everybody, King Leonidas, is going to bow down before you. But all you gotta do is bow before me. So that's the climax of the whole movie. Leonidas, I don't know, he's smug and, you know, offensive, and so he doesn't, and, you know, it's great. It's, 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 it's hilarious. But he doesn't bow down. But you know who Leonidas does bow down to? Himself. He bows down to human secularism, because this is where it's birthed. It's, birth, it's birthed in Greece, the, the worship of man and man's accomplishments is birthed here. So it is really cool that Leonidas will not bow his knee to Xerxes, but guess what? He's not going to bow his knee to Jesus either. Interesting. All right. So Haman, thank you. Haman says he's like hurt. He's like all offended. Why won't Mordecai? Why doesn't Mordecai bow down to me? Everybody else bows down to me. I'm the king's man. I'm the right hand of the king of all kings. Why won't he bow down to me? And it leaks out. Mordecai is a Jew. I hate Jews. My family has hated Jews their entire life. Our people hate Jews. Haman, Haman is Hitler. No, I believe that the very same spirit, like the, the, the same principality that was upon Hitler, that empowered Hitler, that gave Hitler the resources that he needed, that gave him the ability and the rhetoric to, to, to fan the flames of hatred throughout all of Europe and to kill six million Jews. It, like this, 
you know, the, the little German guy didn't get that within his own power. He got that from the enemy of God. It was a demonic spirit, a big, giant principality that possessed Hitler, that also possessed Haman. It's the same guy. And when Hitler died, when Haman died, it got passed on to somebody else and eventually got inputted into Hitler. And when Hitler died, it went somewhere else. Who knows where he's at right now? But he's out to kill God's people and to do it in a systematic way. And so once Mordecai, no, once, excuse me, for the sake of time, once the evil dude figures out that, he, that Mordecai is a Jew, not only does he want to kill Mordecai, but he gets this bright idea, no, I don't want to just kill Mordecai, I want to kill them all. I, am at the, I have such immense power. I am running this empire while big, fat, hairy Xerxes is getting drunk in his harem. That's what's going on, folks. He's not this slim, sleek, sexy guy. No, he's a pig, right? He devises one of the most evil plans the world has ever seen to annihilate all the Jews in the entire empire. They're, the Jews are not, they're not slaves anymore in Babylon. They have broken the bondage of slavery. There's something interesting. Like when, when Cyrus gave the decree to send the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls with Nehemiah, if you were here last week, only 10% of the Jews came back. 90% stayed in the Persian Empire. Why? Because they learned the secret of favor. Because they bought houses. Because they, they elevated themselves up into areas of leadership and influence. They were living the good life. So why in the world would you want to go back to Judah and try and scrounge up a living digging up rocks? No. They were, things were good for God's people with inside of the empire because, oh gosh, folks, if you are living in bondage, if you are in slavery, if you keep on thinking these horrible negative thoughts, you don't have to. You just need to learn the Jewish way of favor. Like study these guys. Get out. You can be blessed. You really can. It all happens between the ears. You've got to change the way that you think. You need to start thinking like a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. God's a Jew. Start thinking like one. Learn favor. Get rid of this, this attitude like, you know what, it's just me against the man, right? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to screw my boss. Don't do that. You're not going to get anywhere wanting to screw your boss. You're going to get somewhere by earning and gaining his favor and winning him to the Lord or winning her to the Lord, whatever it may be. Yeah. So the Jews figured this out. They're everywhere. They're everywhere from India to Ethiopia, into Greece, all over Palestine, Persia, Iraq, Iran. They are merchants. And they are involved in the community. They have established their values. They're their own people. They serve kings and princesses and, and dictators. And they serve in, inside of, of new democracies. Yet they won't bow their knee. Because why? What does it say on the package of Hebrew national hot dogs? They answer to what? A higher authority. And that is the only knee that they bow their knee to. 
And we got to get this. If you want God's favor in your life, quit bowing your knee to secular humanism. Quit bowing your knee to your own self. That's our biggest issue right now. Is like we just think that we're so that. We think we're all cool. It's all about me. I'm just going to worship myself. All right, I'm getting there. So, Mordecai, because of his ability to gain favor, teaches his daughter the skills of gaining favor. She becomes queen. Unfortunately, she has to marry this pig, Xerxes, but she does. You know what? It's not that bad of a gig. I don't know. It's kind of weird, right? If you really think about it, like, let's just put in our, let's just think like a feminist for a second. It's pretty jacked up, right? It's pretty jacked up. It doesn't make, it doesn't, like, this story, there's like a lot of moral ambiguities in this story. This is one of them. Making your daughter marry, not just a drunk, okay, but he's the king of all nations, which is kind of cool. So he's got something going for him, I guess. But he's a pagan. They're breaking Torah law. I don't... What, what's going on here? I don't know. We, we'll, we'll, I'll tell you at the end, okay? But this is, there's, some, there's some gray areas going on here. Like, there's rules that are being broken. There, is, there are Torah rules broken right here when, as soon as she marries Xerxes. What's going on? All right. So when Haman discovers that he's a Jew. He goes out to kill all the other Jews. And he, since, he's, since he's the right hand, he's got, he's got Xerxes' ring, sort of. Like Xerxes' drunk. Again, there's a lot of drinking going on in this story. Xerxes' drunk, and Haman grabs his hand while he's in a stupor and gets his signet ring and writes this decree to kill every Jew in the entire empire. And part of this decree is to say, you have everybody from, from Ethiopians to, to Iraqis to Greeks you have the right, you have, it's, open, it's open day to kill Jews. You will not be prosecuted if you murder a Jew. Not, not only will you not be prosecuted on this 13th day of the month to kill Jews, but you can also take their property and their money and their land, everything. It's all yours. So, I mean, what a horrible thing, right? This is, this is Haman's evil plan. He's going to empower an entire empire to annihilate every single Jew on the planet and take their stuff. What did Hitler attempt to do? He, had, he, he killed six million Jews. He would have kept on going if he could. Not only did he kill them, they took their money. They took their art. They took their land. They took their property. They took everything. What would have happened if there would have been a Mordecai and an Esther during World War II? Could we have changed the, the, the course of history? I kind of think so. That's, a, that's debatable, right? Why not, though? Why can't we change history? I think that's how God made us. All right. This is when Mordecai persuades Esther to save the Jews. Mordecai confronts Esther and he says this. This is uh, chapter 4, verse 12. When Esther's, uh, excuse me, uh, chapter, I'll go 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. Then she instructed him 
to say to Mordecai, all the officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for a woman to approach the king in the inner court by, uh, by being summoned, the king has, not, has but one law. They will be put to death. So if she approaches the king with a summons that is not formally petitioned, she, anybody can die, including the queen. Unless the king extends his scepter and then spares their lives. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. He's saying, look, so this is a dad talking to a daughter. I want you to take a big risk. I want you to break protocol, risk your life, go into the king's presence and say, save the Jewish people. He says, look, this is what's at stake, honey. Uh, Honey's not the right word. Because this is his adopted daughter. He's looking his daughter in the face. He says, look, this is what's at stake. People are going to die. Everybody knows that I'm a Jew. Your father will die. And you might die too if they figure out that you're a Hebrew. Well, this is the hard talk that a dad has to his daughter. And then he says this. Underline this, this is verse 14. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Have you been blessed? Why? Sometimes people walk in such incredible blessings and they can't quite figure it out. What happened? How did I get all this stuff? How did I get so lucky? Right? Maybe it's for such a time as this. What is God calling you to do? Why are you so blessed? Why did you end up in royalty? Who needs to be saved? Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. She's saying, I'm all in. Oh, gosh, this is so hard. Could you imagine being a dad and telling your daughter, I'm asking a lot of you. She probably could have gotten away of being the queen for the rest of her life. She probably could have faked it. She was good at getting the king's favor. She could have lived the rest of her life in luxury. But in her mind, always knowing that because she did not act, her father was murdered and her entire people were slaughtered and annihilated. So she says, fast for me. I'm all in. Isn't that incredible? What a brave young girl. Again, she might have been a teenager. What a brave young girl to say, I'm all in. Most, well, maybe it's changing. A lot of young people wouldn't take a risk like this. They wouldn't sacrifice themselves. Look at what she says after this. Fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or nights. And my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go into the king's presence. I will march myself right up there, even though I'm not supposed to do it. 
And I know this is an issue with the king because he's already lost one wife, Vashti, for being rebellious. So I am going to be rebellious in his presence. You see how dangerous this is. I mean, Xerxes got woman issues, right? He's got lady problems. And now he's going to have another one. <laughs> she marches right into his presence. I will go into the, to the king, even though is it against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Could you imagine if your daughter said to this, and he's like, oh my God, I don't know if I could do this, by the way. I'm being really transparent with you. If my daughter says, you know what, I, God's calling me to Afghanistan, and if I perish, I perish. I'd be like, oh, heck no, you ain't going anywhere. I'm going to lock you back up in your room. Could you imagine that? I just, it's hard, isn't it? I won't go to Afghanistan because I don't want to. I don't want to die. I didn't. I've never said anything like. Well, okay, maybe I have. But lately, I have not said anything like this. If I perish, I perish. That is being okay with death. A lot of us are not okay with death. Like we fear death. Maybe you have good reason to fear death because maybe you don't know where you're going. This is confidence in the Lord. She knows where she's going. She's able to say with confidence, if I perish, I perish. All right. She doesn't perish, obviously. The story ends well. It is a complete ironic reversal of fortunes. Everything that evil Haman did, boo, evil Haman did, his decree is countered by another decree. Uh, Xerxes actually can't say, oops, my bad, let's get the white out and reverse my decree. He can't do that. So throughout the entire empire, this decree is everywhere. Everybody knows that on the 13th of the month, it is open day on Jews, you can kill them all. And that cannot change. Because it is a royal decree with his seal. It cannot change. It cannot be undone. It can't be like, oops, my bad. No. And so Xerxes says, okay, bad evil Haman dies. Boo. Because God gives Mordecai favor. Mordecai actually saves the king's life. The king remembers it. And the king says, you know what, Haman, I don't like you anymore. And he impales him on a big pointy spike that was meant for Mordecai. So you see, there's all kinds of reversal of fortune. What was meant for evil, God had used it for good. That's what's going on. The whole story is about that. Now, the evil decree is countered by a, a divine decree that Mordecai writes and that he seals with a signet ring. And it goes like this. Jews, Hebrews, whatever you want to call yourselves, on the 13th of the month, Friday the 13th, this evil day, right? 13's got this weird, weird thing all throughout history. I'm not into numerology, but it's just there always. You have the right and the authority. In fact, we are strongly encouraging you that you take up arms, that you assemble in the, in the squares, and that you defend yourselves, and that you kill anybody that is trying to kill you. Isn't that cool? And they have evil Haman dies, and all of the other people that are in league with him, they all die too. <laughs> because the Jews are given the authority and the power to defend themselves, to take up arms, 
and to defeat the evil that has been, the evil decree that has been placed against you. Look, this is a story, right? This is a telenovela. This is a soap opera. But there is an evil decree that has been placed on your life that has been sealed by the devil and his dominions, and they are out to get you. There is a wanted poster with your face on it in Hades, and they are after you. But the thing about God is that he can take every evil thing and he can turn it around for good. Haman, boo, not only does he die, he gets humiliated. And God loves to humiliate his enemies. Didn't you love it when Hitler was humiliated? I did. Sorry. Is that wrong of me? I don't know. But this is what happens. And all of this, this, this evil demonic decree that's been placed over your life, that is a claim on your life, is going to be, it has been undone on the cross with the shedding of Jesus' blood for the, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so you have been set free. You have a decree, a royal decree, by a real king, and not a big, fat, hairy, drunk king, by a real royal king that says that you are my friend and that you are royalty and that you are my children and that you are going to sit with me at the right hand of the Father and I give you the signet ring. I give you the credit cards. Whatever, God, whatever the enemy of God has used for evil, God has turned around for good. That was Joseph's message. Joseph and Mordecai are very similar, aren't they? Joseph was, uh, he was raised up to be the right hand of, of Pharaoh, and so was Mordecai. Daniel, the same situation, raised up to be the right hand of the king in Iraq. So was Mordecai. Nehemiah, raised up to be the right hand of the king. So was Mordecai. It was <laughs> this ability to tap into favor, to take all of the negative situations in life and turning them around and making them good. And we have this. We have this promise for our lives. So what is bad in your life? What is it? Is it your finances? It can be turned around, and it can be used as a testimony, and it can mock the devil. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like it if you're, instead of living in constant debt and poverty and life sucking, that you could be so blessed that you could mock the devil with your provisions? Or what about your marriage? And Maybe your marriage just sucks. I, John's word about falling back in love with your spouse. That was for us today. I mean, would you imagine if you could just say, you know what? My marriage is a sacred, holy thing that mocks the devil. This is what God intended. And it's good. You can have that. It's all yours. All right, let me wrap it up. On the 13th day of the 12th month, an edict commanded by the king was carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand and all over the and upper hand over all those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and in their provinces of King Xerxes. No one could stand against them because the people of all the nations were afraid of them. And all the nobles and all the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the kings and the administrators, they helped the Jews because of Mordecai. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the, pro the, the province. And he became more 
powerful. Changes the world. The, the, the Hebrew people elevate themselves to a higher level of influence throughout the empire. I don't have time to get into it today, but when Alexander the, come, the Great comes in and there is, this, there is this, this mesh between Eastern and Western thought, the world begins to change and develop more, God is in the middle of the whole thing because of Esther. Isn't that cool? Yes. Because of Mordecai. God's providential hand is all over the place. It's all over this book. And here's the ironic thing about the book of Esther is that God is never mentioned once in the entire book. Isn't that cool? He's not, he's not in there. There is no, there's no, God, G-O-D, Yahweh, he's not in there. It's so weird, isn't it? There's no miracles. There's no supernatural miracles in the book of Ruth. There are, there are no uh, divine interventions. God doesn't step in. It, it seems as if it's all by human will that all of these good things happen. There is huge amounts of moral ambiguity in this whole thing. It seems as if God is not present, yet he's all over the place. Here's one of the, this is one of the interesting things about right in the middle of the book. Um, Esther says, um, I forgot exactly what she says, but she says, she says four words, and the beginning of each word spells the ideogram Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. And that's the only reference to God in there. But she doesn't even, I don't know if you caught this, but she doesn't even pray. I don't know, if I was in this situation, I'd be hitting my knees, I'd be freaking out, I'd be scared, I'd be praying. She fasts. I don't know what the significance of that. I mean, we, we're fasting right now. I mean, I know it's important. It's important to fast. Look how skinny I am. See my ribs? I'm suffering for Jesus. This is all the reward I'm getting, folks. There's no divine reward. I'm just showing off because I, I want to be healthy and I want you to be healthy. So this is, I'm doing this, I'm doing this for physical health reasons, spiritual health reasons after that, uh, to destroy principalities and demonic forces. Uh, th that type of fasting, you don't show it off by saying, look how much I'm suffering for Jesus. I'm starving myself to death. No, you just go after that stuff in your prayer closet. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. No, I want everybody to be healthy. Because we have to, this is, this is, God's called us to a holistic lifestyle, mind, body, soul, and spirit. And so I'm doing this for my body. It's paying dividends off in all areas of my life. I want to encourage you to do the same. But yeah, she taps into, that's the only thing that's spiritual that goes on. Maybe with the exception of Mordecai not bowing his knee. What does that mean for us? Do you know that in your, in your lives, that 90% is like just the mundane, really boring, junky stuff where God's just not present? At least it feels like he's not present. No, he's there. He's real. Can I get an amen? amen? Do you ever feel like God is not there for you? He doesn't hear your prayers. Your prayers fall down flat. He's not active. You don't see any miracles. You don't see any divine intervention. You don't, you don't see the stuff that's in the Bible. Well, Mordecai and Esther, they didn't see it either, yet they were faithful and out of his mouth, it says, such a time as this, that you were put into royalty. For this moment, this time, this history, you don't need a prophet, you don't need a word from God, you don't need, a, you don't need, a, you don't need somebody to read your tea leaves, you just need to do it. And we just, we're looking for a sign sometimes, when it's just very clear, and it's just very obvious that God just wants us to save our kids. 
It's really that simple. They didn't need anything. They were just obedient. No angelic visitation for Esther. She just said, if I perish, I perish. I get the band to come up to the front. I didn't do too bad, huh? All right. If I could have the ushers come to the front, too. Do you stand with me? Let's pray. How many need a reversal of fortune in your life? You need a reversal of fortune. We all do. Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. We know that in all things, God works for our good. In all things. Every bad thing that's going on, God's in it. You just need to recognize that he is in it and allow him to work and just to continue to be faithful to his calling on your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right now, we just continue just to push ourselves into your presence and we say yes and amen to the work that you're doing and we want a reversal, God. We want to undo the works of the devil. We want to rip our wanted poster off of Hades. We want to place that demonic evil decree with a royal decree that you've sealed us, that your Holy Spirit has sealed us. And when we are sealed in you, our identity is completely confirmed. We know that you are good, that you're a good king, that you're not a mean king, that you're not a pig, that you are that you're a lover of children, that you're a good, good father, and you're out to save us, and you're out to be sovereign in this world, and you're out to be sovereign in our lives when we don't feel you. Bless us this day.